It is a real uh, pleasure to introduce uh, to you Tully and Chivijan, Senior Pastor of Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Uh, Tullian's books and, and many other books from our Lenten speakers are available in the bookstore. Uh, we are just so glad to have you. Uh, Tullian has been married for almost 19 years to Kim. Uh, they have three children, Gabe, Nate, and Jenna. Uh, Tullian is an active runner, but also uh, enjoys boxing. And Frank Limehouse found that out and challenged him to a match, a boxing match, uh, in Cleman Commons after lunch. So you want to stick around uh, for that. Um, Tullian will preach to us after we sing hymn number 693, verses 1, 4, and 5. a huge privilege for me to be here. Uh, I have always held high this church in greatest, highest esteem. My relationship with the Zal clan and all of their many minions uh, has made me feel, even though this is my first time here, has made me feel like this church is a home away from home. So this is a great privilege for me to be here. I'm Wondering if that hymn was chosen specifically because I'm here. The only thing missing was an announcement from the pulpit that if you came with a friend, they would wait, that the buses would wait, that if you are in the second balcony, uh, you start now, come forward. That was what I grew up listening to and hearing. I knew that hymn better than any other hymn, uh, and it was great to sing it. I want to talk this morning for a few minutes on Colossians chapter 1. These verses that I'm going to read are verses that changed my life in 2009. 2009 was probably the hardest year of my life for a variety of reasons. Uh, My father uh, became sick that year and eventually died and it was hard watching him wither away. He was my best friend and my greatest counselor, my biggest cheerleader. It was hard seeing him wither away and eventually die. 2009 was also the year that the church that I had planted back home in South Florida in 2003 merged with Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church, which was a church that was much more well-known, about 20 minutes south of the church that I had planted. Their founding pastor, Dr. D. James Kennedy, had died in 2007, and they were in the very unique position for the very first time of having to find a pastor, someone to take his place. And so they came to me, and I said, I'm honored, I'm humbled, but I'm not interested. And they came back to me again about a month later, and I said, once again, I'm honored, I'm humbled, but I'm not interested. Everyone knows what happens to pastors who follow founding pastors. They usually get chewed up and spit out within the first 18 months, and I was not going to volunteer for that job. Um, And about five months later, they came back a third time. 
And that's when they proposed the idea of merging the two churches. There was no way that I could ever imagine leaving the church that God had used me to plant uh, to go 20 minutes down the road. And so when they... When they brought up the possibility of a merger, uh, our team paid attention and that led to three months of very detailed talks regarding whether or not this merger could happen, whether or not it would work. And um, we knew that it would be hard. We knew that it would be very, very difficult to make happen. Uh, But at the conclusion of a three-month period of time, we concluded that this was in fact what God was leading us to do. It was in fact what God wanted us to do. And so we pressed on with the merger and the two churches became one new church on Easter Sunday 2009 and it was an explosive celebration and for one terribly naive second I thought maybe this isn't going to be as hard as I thought it was going to be Uh, but about 10 days after that initial celebration uh, all of the fireworks that we expected to go off started to go off. A petition drive was started a month after I arrived to have me removed. Um, and I felt like the father of a blended family, really. We had a church here and a church here, and this church had been used to doing certain things a certain way, and this church had been used to doing certain things a certain way, and I had to come out right at the beginning and say, if everything changes for you, that means nothing changes for you, and if everything changes for you, that means nothing changes for you, so everything is going to change for everybody from the get-go. Well, you know how people love change, including me, and so uh, it didn't go over very, very well. And the first three months were especially brutal. And I became very depressed. I had never been in a situation like this before. I I was becoming very depressed, wasn't sleeping, wasn't eating, was being attacked. Uh, Anonymous blogs were being posted. A petition drive had been started. Everything from choir members standing up and walking out when I would stand up to preach to a thousand other things. My wife wanted uh, us to get out of the ministry by making money, and she thought the best way to do that would be to sell everything that was going on to a reality television program (laughs) and simply call it Christians Behaving Badly. There were a lot of Christians behaving very, very badly, and I had always been in places and churches where I was loved and well-received and taken care of, and this was the first time in my life that I was actually being attacked. And because my family is well-known and because the church that I was now serving was well-known, it became public in the paper. Uh, It was embarrassing. There were things that were said and things that were done. And it was just a terrible, terrible time in my life. So early June or mid-June of 2009, I took my family away on vacation. We always go on vacation around that time. And I was tempted not to go because things at the church were so uh, uneasy and needed my attention, but I didn't want my family to resent me and putting the church over them, and so I I took them away on vacation, and like I said, I wasn't sleeping, so uh, the first night uh, we got there, I tossed and turned. We rent a little place on the southwest coast of Florida on the beach every year, and uh, I was up bright and early the next morning, grabbed my Bible, grabbed a cup of coffee, went out to the balcony, was overlooking the Gulf of Mexico, and I had it out with God. And I essentially said, you've ruined my life. I mean, I've done what you've asked me to do. And it seems now that two churches have been ruined. My life is ruined. I'm discouraged. I'm depressed. I'm upset. And I said, but you're God, so you can do something about it. 
So why don't you just fix this and give me my old life back? And then I read these verses. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 11, down through verse 14. The Apostle Paul wrote, May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. I stopped there in my reading and I thought to myself, I need all of that stuff. I mean, I need God's strength. I need God's might. I'm running out of gas. I'm crashing and burning. And then the Apostle Paul puts a couple of words together that don't typically go together in our everyday experience. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. I don't typically experience joy while I'm enduring. And I don't typically experience joy when I'm forced to be patient. And so Paul's making this crazy prayer for the Colossian Christians, and I'm resonating with this prayer. As I'm reading this on this particular morning where I was feeling remarkably desperate, I'm reading this and I'm thinking to myself, I need all of this stuff. And then I kept reading, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And when I read those verses, it felt like scales fell from my eyes. Because what God showed me through those verses was that in a sense, it wasn't my old life I wanted back. It was my old idols I wanted back and he loved me too much to give them to me. You see, it wasn't until I was in a place where I was not approved, not accepted, and not loved that I realized for the very first time how much I had come to depend on human approval and human acceptance and human love to make me feel like I mattered, to make me feel safe and secure. I didn't realize it, of course. That's always the way it happens. The things that we depend on that are infinitely smaller than Jesus to invest our lives with worth and meaning and value are not typically things that we are conscious of. They're typically things that we're unconscious of and we only become conscious of those things when they are being stripped away. And so it was through these verses that God showed me everything that you are longing for Everything that you are looking for in a thousand places and in a thousand things smaller than Jesus, you already have in Christ. Those five words changed me, reminded me that God had already qualified me. He had already delivered me. He had already transferred me. He had already redeemed me. He had already forgiven me all of the approval and acceptance and love that I was longing for were already mine because of what Jesus had done for me. He had earned God's approval, God's love, God's acceptance for me so that now I was free from having to frantically search for the love and approval and acceptance that I was frantically searching for by getting other people to approve me. One of the illustrations that I use to bring this home, and, and, um, and I'll, I'll close with this, um, twice, twice in the past year, twice in the past year, and I just turned 40 this summer, so that might explain this, but... Um, I have uh, been late for an appointment or late for a meeting 
and have been frantically searching my house for my car keys. And um, I barked at my wife, where are my keys? My wife is the kind of woman, and I'm sure none of you women are like this at all, but my wife is the kind of woman where if I have a glass of water and I put it down on the kitchen counter for seven or eight seconds and walk to the bathroom four feet away and walk back, it's gone. It's in the sink. It's put away, you know? Um, and so when I couldn't find my keys, uh, Kim, honey, did you, you know, take my keys? They were right here a minute ago. No, I didn't. I didn't take your keys. Um, I'm barking at all of my kids, you know, uh, two of my boys drive. So, you know, did you guys take my keys? No, I didn't take your keys. I haven't seen your keys. Jenna, she's only 11. Maybe she took my keys. Maybe she was playing with my keys. No, I don't have your keys. Uh, my wife is like Dr. Doolittle. She attracts animals. In fact, I literally find animals, new animals in our house every week. It's unbelievable. They hide them from me. Um, and so I'm barking at all the animals. Maybe the guinea pig, maybe the guinea pig played with my keys and took them. Maybe the bird flew away with the keys. Maybe Thomas ate the keys. That's our Shih Tzu who's now dead. Um, but maybe Thomas ate the keys. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking, I, I'm frantically searching. I'm upset with everybody in my house because someone took my keys. Someone misplaced my keys. And on both occasions, I have gone into my room one last time to look, stuck my hand in my pocket, my keys were there. Twice. This has happened. Okay, now... We laugh at that, understandably, because what moron frantically searches for keys when they're already in his pocket? But then it dawned on me, that's the way most of us live our lives. We spend most of our lives frantically searching for something that we already possess. And the word of the gospel, especially in times of dire need and desperation, when we are in the crucible of ache and when we are frantically searching for meaning and value and worth in a thousand different ways, the word of the gospel comes as a great comfort to us and it's God's shout, the keys are in your pocket. Everything you need, you already have in Christ, which means now you can spend your life giving instead of slavishly taking. Now you can spend the rest of your life going to the back instead of working so hard to get to the front. Now you don't have to win. Now you don't have to be right. Now you don't have to be regarded and rewarded and respected. Now you don't have to try to frantically meet all of the demands that are in your life in order to establish yourself and justify your existence. You're free from that. Jesus came to do for us and to secure for us what we could never do and secure for ourselves. And if you are a Christian, you now live your life under a banner that reads, It is finished. And that set me free. I had been a preacher of the gospel for many years. I believed it. I had been biblically and theologically trained. And yet it wasn't until I came to the end of myself that I felt almost reconverted. It wasn't until I came to the end of myself that the, the reality, the beauty, and the brilliance of God's amazing grace, His one-way love, set me free in a way that actually empowered me, in a way that actually took away my fear and my stress and my anxiety. And for that, I will always be remarkably grateful to God for. Let's pray together.
Father, like the, like the father of the sick child, we confess to you, we believe, but help thou our unbelief. We know that the root of our stress and the root of our anxiety, the root of our fears, is unbelief. That we fail to believe, I fail to believe that everything we need and long for, you have given to us for free in Jesus. That we have done nothing and receive everything. I pray that you would help us to believe that. I pray that we would respond to your Spirit's sermon that he preaches inside of us each and every day to those regions of unbelief in us, which is simply, it's true, it's true, it's true, it's true. I thank you for Jesus, and I pray that because of what he's done and because of what he has secured for us, we would leave here today feeling lighter, more free, liberated. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.